All right, now, let's be honest. How many of you were scratching your head just a little bit in that scripture reading, trying to figure out what was going on with Zerubbabel and that plumb line in his hand? Be honest now. A couple of you. Well, this is a reference, what we just read is a reference to what's happening in the book of Ezra, chapter 3, when God's people have returned by, by God's grace alone, not by their own worthiness, they've returned from exile to rebuild the temple, and there is this fascinating moment that unfolds when God's people are laying the foundation for this second temple. The the first one built by Solomon has been destroyed. They're building the second temple now. And the younger generation that spend their entire lives in captivity, in, in, in exile, man, they are rejoicing. They're just coming unglued by what God is doing. And yet, at the same time, the older generation is weeping. It's a really strange moment. You've got rejoicing and you've got mourning and weeping right alongside one another. Why would, why would the older generation be weeping? Well, because they'd seen the first temple. And, and they could see that this second temple, just by looking at the foundation, was not going to hold a candle to the glory of Solomon's temple in days gone by. And yet, God is working. God's working. Even in the small things, sometimes I feel like we should say, especially in the small things. This that we've just read out of Zechariah 4, the declaration from God Most High to the prophet Zechariah is don't despise the day of small things. You see, it might seem small. It may feel like it's even insignificant, but God is building His kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And isn't this something that God does quite often in His Word? I think we see this again and again and again in Scripture, how God delights to use relatively small beginnings to accomplish glorious and great ends. Small beginnings to accomplish big things. And we're going to need to remember that kingdom lesson as we hear the words of Jesus today, as we pick up our study through the book of Luke chapter 13. So let's check it out together. Luke chapter 13 will begin in verse 10. If you're turning in the church Bible that we have in the seat back in front of you, that can be found on page 820, page 820 or Luke 13, 10. By the way, if, if you don't have a Bible a Bible that you can trust, a Bible uh, that is reliable, then, then that one there in the seat back in front of you is yours. T take it as a gift from Friendship Community Church. Read it, believe it, build your life on what it says. We're going to pray one more time just to ask God for His help by the power of His Holy Spirit that He would help us to see His truth and to grasp it and to do it. Let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll read. Father, here we are again with heads and hearts bowed, and we're desperate, Lord. We're desperate for your Spirit to open our eyes, to unstop our 
Heart of hearing ears, Lord, show us your glory as we turn to your holy scriptures this morning. We believe that what you have spoken is true. What you have spoken is eternal. We believe, Jesus, that you are the very image of the invisible God. And as we hear your words, we desire to grow up into them. We desire to believe, Lord. Help us overcome our unbelief. And by the power of your matchless spirit, God, Mature us, sanctify us right here in Friendship Community Church on this chilly January morning. Lord, may we blossom with the fruit of your Spirit through the truth of your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 13, beginning in verse 10. Now, he, speaking of Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, There was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on one of those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is God's word to us, his people. So, we see here in our passage today, Jesus in the synagogue again. He's there often on the Sabbath day, and he's teaching. He's been invited to to teach on this particular Sabbath morning, and he sees a woman there at the synagogue who is in bad shape, like really bad shape. Her body is contorted. She's disfigured and bent over. And in this case, Scripture tells us that her physical malady is the result of an evil spirit. Look at verse 11. It's called here by Dr. Luke, who knows a thing or two about practicing medicine. It's called a disabling spirit. What's more, she's been this way for 18 long years which, friends, illustrates the seriousness and the long-standing chronic nature of her ailment. 
So I just want you to understand, before we rush ahead to the healing that we've already read about here, that this is devastating for this woman. Her condition is debilitating. It's, it's long-standing. Think about how this condition in her life would have impacted every aspect of every waking moment. It's not like she just tweaked her back and needed a bit of an adjustment. Now this is this is big pain. This is life altering chronic illness and disability. Now, it's obviously not the driving point of the passage, so we won't spend too much time on it, but I really do think it's worth noting that this woman with such a terrible and profoundly debilitating condition was in church. You see it? Where did Jesus encounter her? Well, he was, he was teaching at the synagogue, and then he saw her. Where was she? She was at the synagogue. Despite all of the stares, perhaps the snickers, it was common at the time to believe that if you were so unfortunate so, so as to have a condition like that, there's probably something you'd done wrong, some sin or grievous error that, that, that God was displeased with you. And yet, despite the social aspersions, despite the very real physical pain, I have no idea how she would have gotten herself there. The, the bus didn't pick her up. She was in synagogue to worship the Lord on the Sabbath day. I think that's it's worth noting. I don't need to tell you, friends, the, the excuses that people give sometimes so as to miss corporate worship. But, but I think, without squeezing too much out of this, that it's probably an appropriate reminder here at the turn of another calendar year just to say what many of us already know, and that's that the consistent commitment to corporate worship of Jesus Christ is something that should mark God's people. Well, you're just saying that, Zeb, because you're a pastor. You want to build yourself a bigger empire. No, I'm just repeating what the Bible says. Hebrews 10, 25 exhorts us not to neglect, not to forsake, assembling together. Apparently, according to God, it's a priority that His people would engage consistently in corporate worship and in fellowship. So I'm just going to put this out there. Perhaps one worthwhile resolution for you, for us, in 2024 is to prioritize worshiping together on the Lord's Day. And I know I'm talking to the choir. Listen, it's snowy outside and you're here. I'm not yelling at you. I just want to encourage you to make this a priority. What God's Word clearly says is a priority. By the way, since we're on the subject, a friend of mine sent me this meme recently, so I just thought I'd put it up on the screen. How many of you guys have seen this one going around the internet? Come on now, that's funny. Um, I, I plan to show you that before the weather outside did what it did, so I'm not 
trying to insinuate anything. I don't have anybody in mind. Spare me a disgruntled email. But, but I just want to say, I think we do see consistently in God's Word the priority of corporate worship established. Let's be people who prioritize what God's Word says. Let's come together and, and sing His praises and fellowship with one another be, to be edified by, by the assembly of the saints and sharpened by His Word. All right, let's move on. I think also it's necessary for us to point out here as we look through this passage two parallel truths that are running side by side with one another. This passage clearly teaches us, and this might be a bit new for some of us, but it, it, this passage does clearly show that it is possible sometimes for physical ailments to be the result of spiritual, even demonic, oppression. Am I making that up? No, we, we see it right here in Luke 13. She had a disabling spirit. And when Jesus healed her, He said, Satan has bound her, and yet I've loosed the bounds. There were physical things going on in that woman's body. Profound physical ailments, disability. And its root cause was not physiological, it was spiritual. Back in Luke 13, you say, well, I don't know. are you sure? Do you see this anywhere else in the Bible? Yeah, here we are in Luke 13. Back in Luke 11, we saw an example, just a couple chapters back, of Jesus casting a demon out of a man who's, who was made mute by the oppression from that demon. Demons cast out, the guy speaks. Everybody says, Wow! This is an otherworldly moment. Again, in Luke chapter 4, we're just kind of working through the book of Luke. He's a doctor. He knows what he's talking about. Jesus is performing in Luke chapter 4 a multitude of healings. And in some cases, listen to me, some of the cases of those healings, demons are being cast out. Is it possible... That what's happening in our bodies, physically speaking, may potentially be the result of something spiritual beneath the surface. Well, well, yeah, it's possible that that would happen. And it's very important for us to also understand that there is a distinction. The Bible itself draws a distinction between the physical and the spiritual as it relates to this matter. There are times in Scripture where physical ailments, I would say the majority of times in Scripture, where healings or, or healing miracles take place, and there's no mention of the demonic Right there in Luke 4, Jesus is casting out demons out of some. He's healing everybody. Some had demons, some did not. That's an important distinction. There's not a demon under every rock, nor is there a demon under every physical malady. But what do we do about this? Well, I think yet again... This is another one of those times where we have to be very cautious, church, so very cautious about presuming to speak about something 
when we have not directly heard from the Lord. Weren't we just talking about this last week? Go back and listen to that message if you, if you need to. But, church, it is a dangerous thing. It's the right word. It's a dangerous thing, even a wicked thing. When you presume to speak in God's name what God has never said. What are you saying, Zeb? Well, I'm saying great damage. Deep wounds have been done to individuals with certain physiological conditions by church folk, by people in church presuming to speak in God's name who have been insisting that that person's disability or that person's disease or that person's cancer, that person's problem is the result of demonic influence. Have you, heard, have you seen this stuff? Have you heard this? This is just absolutely grievous. People just assuming, because they see it at certain points in Scripture, that because somebody has this sort of thing going on, there's a demon there. Man alive. Be careful. Do not presume to speak what God has not spoken. And, and, be willing to wager most of the folks in this room are probably not doing that. You're probably not out there diagnosing with your finger what you see going around. Perhaps more folks in this room struggle on the other side. Dear Christian, please don't roll your eyes or write off the possibility that there may ever be a spiritual dimension to the suffering that you see happening around you. So, so well, which is it, Seb? What do you want us to do? Here's what I want you to do. This calls for great humility on the part of the Christ follower. Christian, there is much that you don't see. There's much that I don't see. Scripture says that we're looking as though through a glass dimly. So let's be humble. Let's be prayerful. Let's exercise restraint and self-control and not be quick to pronounce over something or someone what God has not. James 1.19 puts it well. Be quick to hear, slow to speak. Let's be content to let God speak for God and have the humility to sometimes say, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. All right. Verse 12, we see the, the very brief account. We've seen the woman. We've seen her malady. We've seen its source. In verse 12, we see a very brief uh, account of Jesus' miraculous healing. Three elements to the healing. Jesus, you're looking at verse 12. Jesus saw, Jesus spoke, Jesus touched. Verse 12, Jesus saw, Jesus spoke, Jesus touched. Consider for a moment that this woman has been bound and afflicted by Satan. This is Jesus' prognosis or Jesus' assessment, diagnosis, that's the right word, of the problem. She's been bound and afflicted by Satan for 18 long years. What's it take to heal her? One touch from Jesus. Just a word. 
just a touch from Christ, and she is completely healed. She is completely restored. You tell me who's got the greater power. Then we see just a little staccato note in verse 13 about her response. Did you catch it? And immediately we read, she was made straight. What'd she do? She glorified God. The result of this woman being touched, of, of this woman being healed and changed by Jesus, is praise. She receives the touch from the Lord, she's healed, and she bursts forth in glory, in praise to God. There's only one explanation for her healing, of course, and, and she gives credit where credit is due. After all, isn't that an appropriate response to all who have been touched by Jesus? It's a reminder this morning, I, I, I so appreciate Ruth Ann's thoughtful selection of, uh, of music here on Sunday mornings, and, and so we, 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 we came out of the shoot singing, rejoice in the Lord, now and always, rejoice. We're just echoing Philippians 4.4, rejoice. And then right after we, we sung rejoice, we transitioned into a psalm of lament, because in that life... Sometimes you're on the top of the mountain and sometimes you're just dragging yourself through the valley. And regardless of where you find yourself today, believer in Jesus, if you've been touched by Him, there is in life and faith some transcendent quality about following Jesus that allows us to say, not because things are rosy, not because life is filled with bubbles and kittens and sunshine, if you're into those things. But because you've been touched by the eternal Savior, because you were dead and now you've been alive, because you were hellbound and now you've been made a son or a daughter of the Most High God with an eternal inheritance that will never spoil or perish or fade. Everyone who's been touched by Jesus ought to have a bit of rejoicing in them. It's unfair and unwise to look around on Sunday morning and judge based upon people's gusto in their singing or their physical demonstration with their posture to say, okay, that guy's really serious about Jesus, but that lady, mm-mm. Not wise, not wise. We worship by the Spirit of God. And we're all wired a little bit differently. And, hold on with me, and, don't do that, and. How do you come before the Savior who ransomed your soul with His blood and sit like a stone and refuse to sing of His glory. Don't do that either. Well, I don't like that song. <laughs> Welcome to the club. By the way, in love, we're not out to please you. <laughs> we're just trying to be faithful. We're singing to Jesus, not to you. God's church has always been a singing church. 
We glory in the one who saved our souls. That's probably enough. All right. She's praising. She's giving glory to God. But you probably noticed in this passage that not everyone is, right? Not everyone's happy. The, the synagogue ruler, notably, is indignant. I like that word. This religious leader, the synagogue ruler, is in this moment more concerned with, more wrapped up with man-made rules and his religious system than he is with what God is doing in front of his very own eyes. Isn't that sadly ironic? His life, certainly his role here, presiding over the synagogue, revolved around the work of God. And yet when God is clearly performing a miracle from on high, he's like, wait, 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 wait. You're not supposed to do it that way, God. But you've got to ask yourself, I think, has Jesus done anything here in Luke 13 that would constitute as work on the Sabbath? Because that's the concern, isn't it? That's why his... I'm not going to use that metaphor. That's why he's so all bent out of shape. Come six days. By the way, he's being a little passive-aggressive about it, isn't he? He doesn't talk to Jesus. He stands up and says to the people, there are six days for work to be done. Come on those days and get healed. Did Jesus work? And what did he do? Verse 13. He saw her. Of course he did. By the way, we're working through Genesis on Wednesday evenings. We've just kicked it, up, kicked it back off again. Some of you may remember the account when, when God saw a woman who was in a really bad place. And He spoke to her. And He provided for her. And, and the name we get from the book of Genesis, out of that account is, he is the God who sees. El-Ro-E. Jesus saw her. You know, there's a way in a big crowd of people of seeing what you want to see. And Jesus, as he was teaching, his mind and heart occupied with many things, sees that woman struggling. And then he gets after it. He saw her does that work? It better not be. Walking around with your eyes closed on the Sabbath. No. Then, then what's he do? He speaks to her. Work or not work? N- not work. No prohibition against speaking on the Sabbath day. Then what's he do? He reaches out and touches her. Work? Mm-mm. Nowhere in the Mosaic Law is there a prohibition against touching somebody on the Sabbath day. So what we see here, I think, in this pompous, self-righteous religious ruler, the synagogue leader, is a guy who is a living, breathing example of what Jesus had just finished talking about at the end of chapter 12. You remember chapter 12? We just were there. When Jesus pronounced, you hypocrites? Huh. Same word here in our passage. Hypocrites? You know, Jesus just finished saying, how to interpret the skies and the weather patterns, and yet you are clueless when it comes to interpreting the times 
right before you. And here is stuffy religious leader exhibit A. The Son of God that all creation has been waiting for, yearning for, is standing in its, His midst. He's, he's performing a miracle, and only God can do this. And this guy's so bent out of shape because it didn't happen the way his religious system prescribed. Interpreting the skies and the weather, weather patterns, but he's got no clue how to see the bigger truth that's standing right in front of him. By the way, um, we are not going to, it was hard to resist the urge, but we're not going to uh, take any time really this morning going down into a um, theology of the Sabbath. Uh, there, there's so much here in Luke and the other Gospels about the Sabbath. One of the primary reasons why Jesus' opponents wanted him dead was because they were just so blasted angry over his treatment of the Sabbath. And they cherished their version of how the Sabbath should operate. And so we're not going to do a deep dive of the Sabbath this morning. We did that back in Luke 6. If you're interested in it, you can go on our website or get on a pod, wherever you podcast. You can get on our church's podcast and you can listen back through that. We've got a little bit more on the, on the uh, Sabbath in that particular message. But suffice it to say, here's Jesus, the Son of God, rightly interpreting the Sabbath. And one of the things that he shows us is this. This is just one principle. I think it's helpful to remind you of with this miracle in mind that the Sabbath is not only about ceasing stuff. Some re religious folk will, will, will want to make the Sabbath all about not doing stuff. And that is a part of it. But the Sabbath, Jesus models for us here, is also about doing the right things, about doing the things that God has ordained. Is the Sabbath for healing? That's the question. Jesus' answer, yes. It's a day for worship. It's a day for rest. It's a day to show mercy. After all, hadn't Jesus already told us in Luke 6, 5, that He is the Lord of the Sabbath? So, so here is the one who made the Sabbath, the Lord of the Sabbath, rightly interpreting the Sabbath and what to do on the Sabbath. And here's this <laughs> synagogue ruler presuming to tell the one who made the Sabbath what he should do on it. Ooh. Jesus' response is next in verses 15 and 16. How's Jesus respond to this guy? Well, he proceeds to call it like it is. We've already seen that word. His, his first response is hypocrites. Interesting. He's not just talking now. This word is in the plural in Greek as well as English. He's not just talking to the religious ruler anymore, the synagogue ruler. Apparently there are others who are persuaded by his logic. Ooh, yeah, this must not be from God, not on the Sabbath. Jesus' answer to them is, hypocrites. And then he proceeds to give an example of their hypocrisy, an example that is really irrefutable. 
And the example that Jesus gives of their hypocrisy played out is one that he employs often. It's what we call a lesser to greater than argument. Jesus uses these all the time. A lesser to greater than argument. Jesus says, it was not a breach of law. It is not a breach of Mosaic law for you to care for your livestock, for you to do what's sometimes called works of necessity on the Sabbath. After all, your oxen still need to drink on the Sabbath. Agreed? What a cruel thing it would be for for God to say, no work, so no food, no water for your animals. No, they they were still allowed to water their oxen and uh, and their animals and to take care of the necessary things that kept life moving. They were allowed to lead them to water. They were allowed to pull them out of a ditch if they fell in. They were allowed, if they were bound up, to loose their bonds. So why would it be that if you could do those basic life-giving things for an animal, that you wouldn't be able to do those things for one made in the very image of God. That's Jesus' logic here. By the way, it's really good. Uh, I, I, wanna, I want you to see this visually. The words Jesus uses in verse 15 and 16 are the same. Let's get that up on the screen if we can. Thank you, guys. Let's read this. Verses 15 and 16. Then the Lord answered him. Here's, here's his response. You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? That word untie. Now I'm colorblind. I don't know what color that is, but it's a different one, right? That word untie is the same exact word that Jesus uses later in the very next word, verse that we translate in English as, the ESV translates in English as loosed. Same word. You you see, you 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 could use either word. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie or loose his ox or donkey to water it? Yes, okay. Well, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, that Satan's bound for 18 years, be untied, be loosed from... From her bonds on the Sabbath day? You see what Jesus is doing? Just like you do some loosening on the, on the Sabbath day to your beasts of burden, so I have loosed this woman who was tied up in the bondage of Satan. And everybody's like, whoa. No more arguing with this guy. Heavenly wisdom. This is... Uh, By the way, what verse 17 elucidates for us, after he said these things, or as he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. We we see here in verse 17 just an amplified response to the two individuals we've already seen. What's the woman do? Well, she glorifies God. She praises God for her healing. What are the people doing here? Where they're rejoicing at the glorious things of God. And what's the synagogue ruler doing? Well, he's grumbling. He's being put to shame by the wisdom of wisdom personified, of the Word of God made flesh. And there are some in the crowd who are put to shame along with him, who share his perspective. 
It's just a zoomed out version of these two personal profiles here in verse 17. And at this point, we might be tempted to shut our Bibles and head on home because the paragraph's done. Some of you might even have a different heading for the next verse in your, in your Scripture. Well, um, it's not done. The account's not over yet. Uh, and I want us to see how what Jesus does next in the following verses, namely 18 and 19, then 20 and 21, what Jesus is about to do is tethered to this miracle that we've just seen. So again, it, it helps to see it visually, I think. Let's, let's put it up. This is Luke 13, 18, the one immediately after the healing we've just seen. And here's how it starts. Luke 13, 18. Let's, let's do this. Let's just read the first three words out loud. Ready? He said, therefore. So, so when you see a therefore in Scripture, you know that it's connected to the thing that came before it, right? No, I'm not going to say the cheesy line. I'm fighting it in my brain right now. Some of you know it. I'm not going to do it. He said, therefore, so what follows in verse 18 and following is, is intended by Jesus to reflect the truth and the events that have just transpired. Dr. Luke is signaling to us here with this therefore that these two parables we're about to see, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, show a heavenly reality that's just been demonstrated through this healing. In a way, if I can, if I can use this terminology, Jesus is in, engaged here in a divine lesson of show and tell. He's just shown us the power and the freedom that's associated with the kingdom of God, and now he's about to cap it all off by telling us two parables about how the kingdom of God operates. These are heavenly truths springboarded by what we've just seen. The point, of course, is to show us that the kingdom of God often does not come like we'd think it would. Right? When the kingdom of God breaks in, Jesus teaches, it seems sometimes like such a small, even an insignificant Thing. But what started as humble, what started as inconspicuous, ends up taken over. Note the stark contrast here between the insignificant, the smallness of the beginnings, and then the massive, far-reaching end result. Two parables, let's take them one at a time. Verses 18 and 19, we see the parable of the mustard seed. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? It's a big question. Answer? To, to what shall I compare it? Here it is. It's like a, a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Well, the mustard seed would have been the smallest known seed to Jesus' audience at the time. Now, we could derail at this point, 
Because in another gospel we read, Jesus saying it's the smallest of seeds, and then people say, well, <laughs> no, it's not. I found one smaller. It's not the point. It was the smallest seed known to Jesus' audience at the time. So he can safely call it the smallest seed, as he does here in Luke. And, and the thing that Jesus is highlighting here is the contrast between the time itty-bitty size of that mustard seed at its start and the surprisingly large size of the end product. I mean, this is not a hard parable to understand, is it? What started as a grain of a seed ends up as a veritable tree. Birds are nesting in its, its branches. Now, Different commentators of the Bible will give you slightly different ranges for a mustard seed plant's growth, if you must know. But here in this region, an, an average size mustard seed would, would grow up into a plant that would range somewhere between 8 to 12 feet high. Now, when I was a much younger, thinner man playing basketball... We all were just trying to dunk constantly, right? We were all just trying to you know, get up there and, and see who had the hops and see who could, who could put the ball down. My hands are just a little bit too small to, to palm that ball. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Rejected by the rim every time. The point is, that's 10 feet. 8 to 12 feet high for that tiny little mustard seed. This is just incalculable. The algorithm for the growth of what was and then what the, the final product becomes. It's amazing. And then, without taking a breath, Jesus moves into a second par uh, parable. He says the very same thing using a different metaphor. By the way, my English teacher was wrong. Apparently, you can mix your metaphors. Jesus did. He says there's a woman who put a little batch of leaven into her flour. Now, if the picture in your mind's eye is a cute little old lady making some bread for dinner, you can crumple up that visual picture and throw it away because it's wrong. What's happening here is a woman baking enough bread for a small army. Look at verse 21. She tucks that little bit of leaven into three measures of flour. Know how much that is? Well, different weights and measurements. It's, it's hard to be exact, but that's approximately 16 five-pound bags of flour. Confession. I thought about doing this. I didn't have a bowl big enough. What we're talking about, friends, by the time you add water and let the bread rise, we're talking about an end product of over 100 pounds of dough. All changed by itty-bitty little bit of leaven. Jesus is making the same point, isn't he? Same point about the mustard seed. Small beginnings, overwhelming final product. And this, friends, is what Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like. 
This is the way it goes, Jesus says, in God's economy. Our natural eyes are trained to see the flashy stuff, aren't they? They're trained to see the big stuff. But God, Jesus teaches, is often and he's working in ways that are behind the surface. Just like the healing of this no-name, desperate woman, while the religious elite fume about how their Sabbath system has been fractured. What's Jesus telling us? He's telling us, don't despise the day of small things. That's the kingdom truth. He's illustrating in these parables. And isn't this precisely what's unfolding before their eyes? The Jews were expecting the Messiah to come with great pomp and circumstance, with power, with flash, with political muscle and military might. And yet, the kingdom of heaven breaks in in such a counterintuitive way, doesn't it? So small. Jesus is born with barely but a ripple into the sea of humanity. Caesar's sitting on his grand throne, wars being waged and peace established. You could almost call it the the kingdom of heaven on earth here in the person and work of Jesus, relatively obscure. We just finished celebrating Christmas born into a manger, born into poverty, nothing beautiful or desirable about him. He he, he died, by the way, in much the same way. He died in humility and shame, in apparent defeat on a terrible Roman cross. And what's he tell us? Don't despise the day of small things. This same Jesus who dies alone on the cross, is building a kingdom that the very gates of hell will not stand against. Make no mistake about it. By the time Jesus' heavenly leaven is done doing its work, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you see it? This is first and foremost about Jesus, about what he's doing. He's the king. It's about his kingdom. And yet, after we've just paused to gawk at his glory, to marvel at the gospel, I think there's also some trickle-down application that we can see from this spiritual application, even in our little lives today. Here in Washington, Pennsylvania in 2024, so let's get there quick. What's this mean for us? Well, friend, maybe you should not despise the day of small things in your life either. I think the spiritual principle transfers... Perhaps things like prayer. How do you know, by the way, whether someone is wearing holes in their knees 
holes in their jeans. <laughs> Hopefully you don't wear holes in your knees. Just, just abiding in Christ. Just communing with God. Or whether they live a life that's relatively prayerless. How would you tell on a Sunday morning? Well, you couldn't. Prayer can, can be, it would seem to us, a relatively small thing. But not in God's economy, right? I mean, communion with the living God, abiding in Him. Jesus says in John 15, the way to bear much fruit. We've been talking about that lately, haven't we? How do you bear much fruit for the kingdom of God? You abide in Him. You, you remain in Him. You spend time in Him. That's, that's how you become fruitful for the kingdom of God. Prayer, friends. Might 2024 look a little different from us if we grow in the spiritual discipline of prayer? I think that's a big one. How about this one? Service. What's it look like for us to serve the body of Christ? Perhaps in seemingly small, even insignificant ways, like the church nursery. I know you're going to beat each other down, like storm in the nursery to sign up, for, sign up for nursery duty. Can rocking babies and changing diapers and reading books to little ones make a difference? Kind of sounds like a mustard seed to me, huh? Hospitality. You, you know, there's so many different ways to serve and to build up the body of Christ. I won't give you the list. Use your imagination. Do some prayer about, am I serving meaningfully in the body of Christ? It doesn't have to be all fireworks and up front. Am I serving? How about this one? Children, students, Honor your parents. That's God's plan for you. It's one of the many pieces. It delights God for you to do that. What's it look like for you, teenagers? To rather than the eye roll or the attitude, to do this relatively small thing called respecting and honoring the one God handpicked to preside over your growth and development. Honor them. Working professionals, there's a lot of you in the room here. What's it look like to work to the glory of God in 2024? Whether or not you enjoy it, ask your grandfather whether his job self-actualized him. Or was he just providing for his family to put food on the table? And as Christians, we're doing more than grandpa. We're doing this thing for the glory of God. So build stuff, fix cars, manage teams, teach students, drill gas wells, write computer code for the glory of God. Everything you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm running out of time, so I'll just give you one more. What's it look like for us to do this relatively small, seemingly insignificant thing called waiting on the Lord? 
because some of you are sick, like really physically sick, chronically sick, and in pain. And you're managing, some others of you, a wide range of pain or disappointment through the circumstances of life. And you're waiting, and you're praying, and it's just not going away. What's it look like for you to do this seemingly small mustard seed kind of thing of waiting on the Lord in the midst of your situation? You see, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is not just flash and dynamite and it's not just the big stuff, but God works also through the small things. For his glory. One day, church, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. His promise to you, if you're in Christ, if you've trusted in Christ savingly, his promise to you is that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Serve him in the small stuff. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we want to thank you for the truth of your word. And we want to we take just a moment, Lord, to say, you're so good. Lord, you, you're not like us. You're holy and you're, you're set apart. You're, you're, you're different. And, and Jesus, we thank you that, that in immeasurable power and glory, you, you set aside all that, that was yours and you condescended. You, you stooped down and humbled yourself and took on flesh to taste death, even death on a cross. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that you show us And you speak to us just the words we want to hear. You help us, Lord, as we walk through life to manage our expectations, not only seeing you in in the grand and the glorious, but also in the mundane and the small. Jesus, give us faith, we pray, by the power of your Spirit to serve you in all circumstances for the glory of your Son. We pray in his name. And all God's people said.